Welcome to Bart Flies, a podcast about always reading the fine print when you sign up for a new credit card. Today we'll be talking about religious intolerance, capitalism, and why the best man for the job is often a woman in The Merchant of Venice. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 15, The Merchant of Menace. Hey, you think you could spot me for a while? I I got some child support too. I'll cover this. I'll give you three grand for incidentals. That's 60,000 altogether. I've only been up two days. I can still add. Good. Then add two points every week till I'm paid in fucking full. You're charging me, Vig? On top of the principal, it's compounded if you're late. That's 1,200 one week from today. Don't give me that look. This is your problem. James, this plot, like many other Shakespeare comedies, is labyrinthine and intriguing and full of interesting twists and turns. Do you want to break it down for us? I think you already have, Will, but let me tell you what I can about this fine plot. The merchant of the play's title is the wealthy entrepreneur Antonio, a prominent Venetian who has built a far-flung trading empire stretching from America to India. As the play opens, Antonio is approached by his good friend Bassanio, a dissolute young nobleman who hopes to regain his fortune by marrying the wealthy heiress Portia. Bassanio asks Antonio to provide him with the money he needs to press his suit. Antonio happily agrees, but there is a small hang-up. With all his ships out to sea, he's currently illiquid. While he cannot currently provide Bassanio with the needed cash, he has another solution at the ready. He'll act as Antonio's guarantor to secure a loan from Shylock, a wealthy Jewish banker who apparently specializes in the Renaissance equivalent of junk subprime mortgage bronze. Shylock is initially reluctant to agree, because, as it turns out, Antonio has antagonized Shylock by lending out money without interest, which is a practice that has forced Shylock to cut his own rates, but in the end, he comes around to it. He does, however, impose one deadly condition. If Antonio is unable to repay the loan when it comes due, Shylock has the right to extract a pound of his flesh in lieu of repayment. Meanwhile, the aforementioned Portia entertains a variety of suitors at her villa outside Venice. We quickly learn that Portia doesn't have the luxury of choosing her own husband. Her father has instead, in his will, imposed a test. Potential suitors are shown three caskets, one made of gold, one made of silver, and one made of lead. Inside one of these three caskets is a portrait of Portia. The first suitor to choose the casket with the portrait inside gets to marry her. But if a suitor chooses the wrong casket, he must immediately depart. Two suitors fail the test in short order. When Bassanio arrives, he and Portia immediately hit it off. When he is confronted with the casket test, Bassanio reasons that the lead coffin must be the correct one, since it's what's on the inside that counts. This turns out to be the right choice. Bassanio and Portia don't have time to celebrate, however, because no sooner does Bassanio make his choice than a letter arrives from Venice bringing grievous news. Every single one of Antonio's ships has been shipwrecked, leaving him penniless. Which, I have to say, Will, really makes me wonder how he managed to build this trading empire without knowing that he needed insurance on any of his vessels. But I digress. Meanwhile, Shylock, whose anger towards Christian Venice in general, and towards Antonio in particular, has reached new heights following the elopement of his daughter. This is a subplot all its own that we don't really have space to get into, but does play a role in the overall story. In any case, Shylock is now insistent that he must have his pound of flesh. 
Bassanio and Portia are hastily married, and Bassanio runs back to Venice to see if he can somehow rescue Antonio. Portia gives Bassanio a ring that she makes him swear he'll never give away. Will, can you see where this thing with the ring is going? He's gonna give it away? You have a real a real facility with Shakespeare's plot devices, Will. I mean, I, I never saw it coming, James. As soon as Bassanio gets away, Portia dashes off with her servant Nerissa in tow to Padua, where, for undisclosed reasons, she needs to see her kinsman, the prominent lawyer, Bellario. Back in Venice, Antonio is brought up in court by Shylock. The Duke of Venice wants Shylock to show mercy to Antonio, but Shylock is implacable. Even when Bassanio offers to pay back the loan twice over, Shylock insists that he will not relent. The pound of flesh that I demand of him is dearly bought. Tis mine! The Duke wants to hear the opinion of Bellario on the case and admits to the court what appears to be a young lawyer bearing Bellario's opinion from Padua. This young lawyer, however, is none other than Portia in disguise. Portia first urges Shylock to show mercy. When he refuses, she turns the tables on him and demonstrates that while his right to the pound of flesh is undeniable, it is also against the law for him to shed Antonio's blood, and that to seek the death of Antonio is against the laws of Venice. Shylock, outwitted, is forced to convert to Christianity and to give up his fortune. Bassanio offers this mysterious young jurist who has saved Antonio a reward, but initially balks at the request that is made. Portia, still in disguise, requests the ring that she had given to him back at her villa. At Antonio's urging, Bassanio eventually agrees to this request. Portia and Nerissa race back to Portia's village, arriving only just before Antonio and Bassanio arrive. When Bassanio tells her how he has disposed of her ring, she insists that she does not believe him, and that he has, in fact, given it to a woman. Bassanio, of course, denies this, only to be dumbstruck when Portia reveals that it was she who presented the legal defense of Antonio. A letter arrives revealing that three of Antonio's ships have miraculously made it back to Venice, re-establishing his fortune. The play ends with Bassanio pledging never to break another oath to Portia, and with Antonio, we can only hope, frantically googling the names of the best insurance brokers in Venice. Man, so many questions about how Antonio is managing his business. You know, whether it's the insurance question, whether it's the guys that are piloting these ships that are supposedly shipwrecking simultaneously all over yeah, the he, world. He does seem to have hired literally the most incompetent batch of, of ship captains imaginable. If I were on the board of directors of Antonio's business, I would say it's time to uh, cut him loose and to install another CEO, because yeah. this is just ridiculous. Give him a golden parachute and, and let him go separate ways. I can't disagree with you. Or a lead parachute, depending on you know whether Porsche casket test is, is coming into the equation somehow. So Will, I, I think there's actually a lot of rich material to get into in this play, but I think it really is unavoidable to start with the character of Shylock, who as you know, is is a, is a fairly ambiguous or ambivalent, maybe, character in the Shakespearean canon. And there's a lot of discussions about if Shakespeare's portrayal of him is anti-Semitic or not, and if it's not, why not? And, you know, what, what do we make of this character and this portrayal of the Jewish banker? And I personally think there's a lot of ambiguity in there, but l let me just ask it pretty openly or in a sort of open-ended way of what what was your read on this character so and i think this goes to the heart of how you know your context might change the way you read this character but certainly i found shylock sympathetic up to a point 
but the portrayal of him in the end is almost unmistakably negative, despite the fact that he is the victim of various persecutions, and Shakespeare is pretty open about that too. But in the end, Shylock is the villain of the story. Even if, and we didn't really talk about this in the plot summary, but even if his daughter runs away with an Italian suitor, converts to Christianity, and steals a good percentage of his wealth. He's shown in some ways as the victim of all of these travails, and he clearly is persecuted and disliked, and Antonio is not very nice to him throughout their acquaintance, leaving aside business practices, just does not treat him very well. But in the end... I guess this may be Shylock exaggerating, but let's note Shylock's you know, one of Shylock's many lines talking about his relationship to Antonio, he says, thou callst me dog before thou hadst a cause. And there's there's definitely, you know, multiple references throughout the play of how Antonio has spoken against him, you know, mm-hmm. has rallied people away from Shylock in, uh, in yes. the Rialto. And there's a consistent level of, it's not even below the surface. It's just very apparent anti-Semitic current running through Venetian society as Shakespeare portrays it. Now, sometimes that's used for a laugh by Shakespeare. All of the discussions of pork are pretty, you know, much intended that way. Lots of references to the dog Jew, Shylock. So there's definitely an element of Shylock. It's being played for laughs and is the butt of the jokes in the play. But he is also portrayed at times with tremendous pathos, which is where the famous speech that he delivers, uh, hath not a Jew eyes, comes into play. But it's it's ambiguous. It's you feel very I felt very ambivalent reading Shylock, because while I felt Shylock was more sympathetic than Antonio in many respects, Shylock is relentless in his pursuit of revenge no matter how many times he's been wronged. So that kind of sat, uh, it sits uncomfortably with you when you read the play as a person living in the modern era, or at least that's so, that's how it felt to me. Well, can we play actually this speech in its entirety? Because I think it's actually very much of the essence of the character. I'm sure if you forfeit, you will not take his flesh. What's that good for? To bait fish withal. If it will feed nothing else... It will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew! Hath that a Jew eyes? Hath that a Jew hands? Organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you rogue us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge? If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferings be? 
by Christian example. Why revenge? The villainy you teach me, I will execute. And it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. So, yeah, on the one hand, to, to what you were saying about pathos, uh, you know, on the one hand, I agree with you, and there is a real humanism in this speech, right? You know, there's a sense of a commonality of experience, right? And that fundamentally, the differences between us are superficial and not inherent. On the other hand, it's sort of a negative humanism, I think. And I thought it was, I, this actually, in a weird way, I feel like is a a really elegant summing up of some of the stuff we've talked about with regard to Shakespeare's pessimism, because ultimately it's still a very pessimistic view of human nature. I feel like what we end up seeing in Shylock is that on the one hand, absolutely he is aggrieved and wronged and he's, you know, he's been the subject of humiliations and mistreatment. On the other hand, he's giving it back in even greater measure, right? So I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of the ambiguity of like, do we pity him for how he's been treated or we or do we condemn him for how he treats others? Well, there's also, that, that makes sense. I think there's, there's another element though, that I would draw out of the speech, which is the element of Shylock that is an indictment of Christian hypocrisy if in Christianity you were supposed to love your neighbor and that is the entirety of the law, which is a sentiment that the Christian characters express in various ways when we get to the trial, particularly in the person of Portia, that is not the way they behave towards him or treat him for almost the entirety of the play, if ever at all, right? So there's an element of Shylock who, when he says, if a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why revenge? Yes, it's not a, uh, it's not a pleasant or praiseworthy or laudable or even virtuous reaction, but he is basically calling out the Christians with whom he is dealing in the Rialto, in his business dealings, for not treating, not just treating him particularly well, but the hypocrisy of them failing to live up to their own religious ideals and their faith. And so there's, yes, there's definitely a case that he is advancing revenge at a, a much more intense and vicious level than is really called for by the situation. And that may be because his daughter ran off with his money and married uh, a Christian and converted, and he needs to seek revenge on the society that's excluded him in various ways. But I think the indictment of hypocrisy and religious hypocrisy in particular stands out to me in this passage. Yeah, problem, and I think on the... Su- no, no, go go for it. Yeah, I think I think the problem and why the reason why though that Shylock doesn't emerge as a totally virtuous character who's discriminated against and is out to basically go like full Django on Antonio and the rest of the Christian society of Venice is the way in which he seeks his revenge seems so gratuitous and over the top to the point where even when he's offered recompense He's still seeking revenge in the trial scene and before the trial scene where Bassanio offers, 
huge amounts of Portia's money to pay the debt many times over, and he insists on the pound of flesh. So that's where I think the ambiguity comes in, and you have to grapple with the fact that Shylock has been warped by the way he's been treated and by perhaps his just own personality so, uh, and individual you know, existence. Yeah, this, uh, this question, and I don't, I don't think we have an answer in the text, really. I, I'm interested in, though, I'm very curious with Shylock about to what degree, you know, to what degree this implacable desire for vengeance is something that's maybe in contemporary parlance we'd call it sort of a manifestation of internalized trauma or something like that, and how much mm-hmm. of it is he's just not a very good guy. And I don't think the play offers us an answer to that question. And I think it's simul- It's hard for me to simultaneously avoid noticing that one, he, you know, his accusations of hypocrisy are dead on. I, I think it'd be very hard to argue with any of the sort of normative uh, moral claims that he makes. And he's also he's also making certain legal claims that are hard to argue with in a certain or, or that that have a certain intellectual consistency. Mm. On the other hand, that sort of legalistic insistence on like a principle that is so negative leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Yes, it's kind of like somebody that has a unseemly passion for the death penalty. Not maybe as a matter of justice or because they think that in some cases it's warranted, but because they just really want to see people punished in the most extreme way possible, right? There's a certain degree of bloodlust and enthusiasm with the way he approaches getting his pound of flesh from Antonio. He's clearly enjoying it. But I want to zoom back to this question of um, Shylock and whether he represents an individual who's been traumatized in some way by virtue of his personal experiences and the experiences he's had Mm -hmm. as a Jew in Venice, we don't really see the rest of the Jewish community in Venice in any appreciable way. There's his friend Tubal, uh, who's a fellow Jewish merchant. There is his daughter, Jessica, who runs off and converts with Lorenzo, converts to Christianity and marries him. And she's portrayed, I think, relatively positively in the context of the story. But again, Mm -hmm. she converts to Christianity, embraces the true faith, right? And then there's the reference, and I thought this was shot through with pathos, with Shylock in particular. He's describing... And it's portrayed almost comically when Jessica, his daughter, runs off to elope with Lorenzo, who is a friend of Bassanio's. He runs around saying, oh, my ducats, my daughter, my daughter, my ducats. And there is a sort of unflattering portrayal of him being concerned about the money just as much as his daughter, maybe even more Mm -hmm. so. And then he starts talking about the jewels that she ran off with, which comprised a good percentage of his wealth. But he also mentions the turquoise ring that belonged right. to his wife, Leah, who I believe is is uh, dead in the story. You never see her, certainly. I think the implication is that she's deceased. But there are these moments where Shylock is a more well-rounded and more interesting character, yet he's also the only Jewish character that we see in any appreciable way. And it's clear, I think, by the time you look at the social context and the trial, that Shylock is meant to represent a certain legalism 
that Mm -hmm. people would associate with Judaism, certainly at Shakespeare's time, and that the other side of the trial is meant to represent Christian grace, even though the Christians have shown very little grace in their interactions with Shylock on a day-to-day basis. But so there is this sort of sense of like Shylock being set up, maybe not even though he's being portrayed as a well-rounded, complex person, he is also being taken as an exemplar of the Jewish people, which is why people have played with this archetype of Shylock and the stereotype yeah. of the avaristic Jewish moneylender, you know, in propaganda in Nazi Germany and just throughout the history of the performances yeah. of this play. So, so there's a there's kind of a, a dynamic there where I don't know how to resolve that, but I think it's he's both an archetype of a particular perception of Jews, which is very negative and very anti-Semitic and very hateful in you know in every respect, and then on the other hand, he's shown to have these. Uh, moments of great insight and humanity. So on regarding the legalism thing, well, one thing that I was found very interesting in that with regard to that discourse about Christian grace and how the Christians have not shown much grace towards Shylock is that Antonio nonetheless seems like he's set up as Shakespeare to sort of be an anti-Shylock, right? And What's very interesting about Antonio, I think, in this regard, is that one in the right at the end of the trial, Antonio seems to be trying to even out or make more fair the penalty that is leveled on Shylock. Now, you know, I think there's a very open question as to how fair the solution that Antonio proposes actually is. And I would say ultimately it's really not that fair looked at it with a modern eye. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this interesting contrast with I think it's Gratiano where Gratiano, after hearing Antonio's proposed solution, which involves, uh, to, to understand what, what this line means, you just realize that Shylock is supposed to convert to Christianity, and ha- converting to Christianity involves having a godfather, and presumably Antonio is now going to be Shylock's godfather. And Gratiano, hearing this, says, In christening shalt thou have two godfathers. Had I been judge, thou shouldst have had ten more to bring thee to the gallows, not the font. So there's even a contrast between the pretty clearly anti-Semitic Antonio, right, who nonetheless is Shakespeare wants to portray as representing some of this kind of idea of grace and mercy, and Graziano, who is like, no, this guy should be killed, right? So I I don't know if I'm articulating this point particularly well, but I think— we're supposed to come away with it feeling like Antonio is representative of a more Christian ideal. And that's also reflected in the fact that Antonio is giving all these interest-free loans. And that's a big part of why Shylock hates Antonio is because one, Antonio is willing to give loans at no interest and therefore it reduces the value of the loans that Shylock gives at interest. And also that even worse, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get into our next subject, but Antonio also will has repaid debts owed by other people to Shylock and therefore prevented Shylock from basically getting all their possessions. So I do think we're meant to see Antonio... I think we're meant to see both sides of the, of the Christian element of this. Yes. You know, I think Shakespeare wants us to both see a positive side of it, but also show us the hypocrisy of it. Do, do, yes. do you think that's right? or do I, you I, think that's, I think that's right, but I actually think that the true opposite to Shylock isn't necessarily Antonio, but Portia. And I agree with everything you're saying about the way Antonio in business practices is set up to be 
Shylock's opposite in the sense of like interest-free loans, paying off other people's debts, you know, not engaging in usury, so on and so forth. But, and maybe this is a reflection on Shakespeare's ambivalent or negative at times attitude towards commerce in general, but it's really mm-hmm. Portia who inherits her wealth and who shows up and gives that wonderful, probably the best speech in the play, certainly one of the best pieces of writing that we've seen, in my view, uh, from Shakespeare thus far, which I is, completely agree, yeah. Uh, which is her speech and plea for mercy to Shylock and to the Duke for Antonio. And it's a much more pure and unself-interested expression. And you don't really see Portia engaging in quite the same level of vituperative disputes with Shylock. And she, in fact, tries to reason with him. She even starts off the trial, perhaps under false pretenses, trying to understand and empathize with Shylock's legal position, but then performs this turn where she ends up forcing Shylock to admit, basically, that he doesn't have the ability to kill Antonio, and then that changes the whole legal trajectory of the case and leads to the end that you were just speaking about. But I, but I do think mm-hmm. it's interesting, because Portia is somebody who is not implicated in commerce, and in fact, she gives freely of her money to save somebody she hasn't even met before, which is Antonio. When Bassanio shows up and gets the word after after he proposes, essentially, that Antonio's uh, ships are wrecked and he feels indebted to Antonio, Portia says, well, absolutely, we'll pay it off. If it's threefold, we'll pay it off. So there's a sort of magnanimity there, which goes beyond these sort of narrow questions of commerce and trade and even rivalry in the commercial sphere. And it's just about beneficence and granting grace to people. And I think it's no mistake that she is the one who gives the most eloquent brief on that behalf, on behalf of that yeah. cause or that concept. Can we, Will, I think uh, I think this is one also that we really should play on the pod. Can we just yeah. take a moment to do that? The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow, this strict court of Venice must needs give sentence against the merchant there. All right, uh, so Will, we've already sort of started to stray into the territory of our second topic, so I, I think maybe... 
Well, is there anything else you want to address with Shylock, or do you think we can turn to? No, no, I think we're I think we're solidly into discussing the next yeah. topic. Yeah. So there, there's a topic. This topic is one that I have wanted to find a way to address in a couple of other plays, and it just hasn't really seemed to fit. And I'm glad that we waited because I feel like this play is Shakespeare's thesis about money and capitalism, basically. Mm-hmm. Or I guess in, in his context, it's more like mercantilism, but regardless. In other plays, when Shakespeare talks about money, I feel like it ends up being almost entirely negative. There's the scene with the apothecary in Romeo and Juliet, in which Romeo says to the apothecary, you're poor, you don't have any money. Uh, you know, I'm, I appeal to, what, what's the line? I appeal to thy poverty and not thy will. And, and that sort of follows on this whole thing about how he's unfortunate and how, and basically the apothecary breaks his own moral code because he needs money. And then there's a speech in King John in which the bastard talks about how commerce basically is the root of all evil. And, you know, that's a very, very aggressive paraphrase. And while on the one hand, I feel like we get a little bit of a more nuanced view of, you know, of mercantile activity in The Merchant of Venice, probably because Shakespeare is having to engage with the question head on instead of making these asides about Mm -hmm. it. Nonetheless, the portrayal seems to be overall fairly negative. And you see it in, you know, one, there's sort of a sense that Antonio is engaging in really risky behavior or speculative behavior by engaging in this mercantile activity. Shylock is portrayed sort of as a, you know, what we today would think of as a predatory private equity investor. Or like a payday lender, quite literally, right? I've been watching The Sopranos again recently. And they constantly refer to various characters' shy businesses, right? I mean, a Shylock is a modern stand-in for a loan shark in mafia terminology, right? So there's this the link between sort of the criminality there to the more rapacious types of capitalism and financial instruments is absolutely something we're still thinking about today and it's directly tied to even the word shylock yeah and and there's a sense that shylock is giving out loans to people uh, at the very least hoping and probably thinking that they're not going to be able to repay it right and that gets to what i was saying about how part of his or a large part of his beef with antonio Mm -hmm. is about the fact that antonio will repay these loans so there's a sense that shylock is using money as a weapon and improperly in order to further enrich himself. And and so, so I guess the first way I would present this question to you is, on the one hand, I think there's a reading that is Shakespeare just doesn't understand how capitalism works and how economic theory functions. But I think there's also a possibility that you can read in a more sympathetic moral sense, which is that the type of activity that Shakespeare is talking about and criticizing here really is dangerous and predatory and you know maybe it's not without cause that he would be reacting in this way what do you think so there's a lot there's a lot there to to break down i think some of this is going to be implicitly connected to the religious themes and to this idea of grace and i think this is part of what makes portia's speech so interesting where she attributes this quality of mercy and forgiveness, and in a sense, forgiving of, of one's debts, as the Lord's Prayer says, in these kinds of relationships, the idea that we're all indebted 
to God, and therefore nobody is in a place to impose unreasonable obligations on, on other people, and you should seek the welfare of other people, not just profit for your own sake. And I think that's part of the indictment that he's offering in a lot of respects. It's sort of a theological point. I also think there's the social point. I mean, if you think about contextualizing Shakespeare, who ended up a wealthier man in the context of his time, but certainly would have been acquainted with any number of people that were down on their luck, indebted, constantly living hand to mouth in the theatrical world and in the sort of freewheeling era of Elizabethan England, I think you definitely would have seen the negative side of some of these things. I think what's ironic about it, though, to me at least, is if you read, and I'm by no means a a financial historian or an expert on this, but I, I would imagine that if you read about actual Venetian commerce, there's no way a guy like Antonio wouldn't have been implicated in all sorts of financial skullduggery. Shakespeare just needs a convenient foil to position opposite Shylock for the purposes of the themes he wants to draw out. So there's the the element of whether Shakespeare understands commerce or capitalism or mercantilism or finance. I think the answer is probably no in the grand scheme of things. Or maybe he does, but he just conveniently simplifies it for the purposes of his own. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, I, I think it's true. I, I don't think there's any question that Antonio A. would not be giving out zero-sum loans, and also, even if he was repaying people's debts, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be as altruistic as he portrays it, right? Antonio says, you know, when he's talking about Shylock's anger towards him, he says, I oft delivered from his forfeitures many that have at times made moan to me, therefore he hates me. His implication there is that he paid off these loans out of the goodness of his heart, and the real life Antonio, if he existed, would have been paying off those loans. So he was buying that to buy that debt for himself, right? Well, exactly. Well, and in fact, you mentioned uh, subprime loans. I mean, one of the reasons the financial crisis happened, uh, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but you know, people took out subprime loans and then they were purchased as packages, as investment vehicles, right, by banks. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, right, the original mortgage broker or lender didn't actually own the loan anymore, couldn't actually accrue interest from it. It was all owned by the financier who had bought up these things. So it's actually kind of ironic. In some sense, somebody like Antonio could have ended up with these bundles of collateralized debt obligations from the people that he was ostensibly out to help. So anyway, the digression, but I think there's definitely an interesting resonance there when you think about would Antonio's behavior actually be seen as altruistic today? Right. Uh, Nonetheless, the the larger point that I was going to make or the thematic point that that I wanted to make was that I feel like Shakespeare's trying to do something you know, regardless of, of how Antonio's behavior is or is not realistic compared to what was really happening on the Rialto in 15th century or 16th century Venice, I think it doesn't really matter for the purposes of Shakespeare's play, right? I mean, it's what he's going for thematically really requires, I think, that Antonio be this more altruistic figure, right? And that also... Yes got to a second question that I had as I was thinking about this and that like I feel like today you know a lot of criticisms of the financial industry center around the idea that 
it's unproductive. The feeling is that in the financial sector, people are just moving money around, but not actually creating anything of value. And so I was sort of interested in the idea of, is that something that Shakespeare's playing with? And, you know, Antonio is a tradesman. He's really risking a lot in his line of work. You know, he's constantly speculating, but ultimately he's facilitating the real movement of goods and people. And that's what, what the basis of his fortune, as opposed to Shylock, whose fortune is built on this kind of predatory loan behavior. And yeah. what's interesting about that is that you can't have one without the other, right? Right. You know, at this point, maybe Antonio is successful enough that he, he can he can invest in his own business. But you've got to assume that Antonio, at the start of his career, probably was taking out a loan from someone like Shylock to start his enterprise, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, in, in Venice, you know, to contextualize, I mean, Venice was the banking center of the Mediterranean world, certainly, but probably the European world writ large, I would say, or sort of Southern and Western Europe. Certainly, it was renowned for that. So there were plenty of opportunities to take out loans and get promissory notes and everything else in the, in the sort of exchange of the day. To go back to your point, though, there is a sort of what would be, you know, in political science or political economy would probably be called like a producerist critique, right, of Shylock or of that financial sector. And I think your point, though, is is astute. One cannot really exist without the other if you want to have any sort of not just global economy, but economy that operates at scale and provides the abundance that people want when they consume. There are very few people that are so wealthy as to not need insurance when they operate shipping, right? There's a whole reason that there's entire shipping exchanges on insurance, that it's, it's maritime insurance is its own market, right? And uh, is, is a big deal in the world of commerce and trade. There's a reason why you need those things. The question is, when do you slide from reasonable business practice into abuse or into abusive practices? And the church at the time had sort of idealized this way of doing that without usury, without charging interest, uh, whether or not that was ever really practiced uh, entirely as altruistically as been portrayed is sort of a separate question. But I don't think that you get to ships going to Mexico and the Indies and England and you know Northern Europe without some form of a financial system and you need people to do that and to have the the capital they need to engage in some of these transactions the question is how do you protect people on the back end from where it goes from reasonable to like completely unreasonable and i think for shakespeare he's probably looking at this from the perspective of characters that are constantly in debt and constantly um in trouble in various ways. Bassanio is a character that fits that description. Antonio ends up there despite being a rather wealthy person. And there's a degree of sympathy for people that get in over their heads, signing agreements that they don't necessarily fully understand the terms of, or at least Antonio should understand the terms of the agreement that he signs, right? But he clearly like dismisses it. Well, uh, what was amazing to me, actually, this is, I think this bears a two minute digression, Will, because it was amazing to me as I was looking back over the play that, right, Antonio isn't just willing to sign up for the terms of this contract he's excited about it Mm. and basically when i was looking at it again this morning what i realized is that 
He is so opposed to paying any form of interest that he would rather stake a pound of his flesh than be in the situation of having to possibly pay interest back to Shylock. That's true, though I, though I would also point out that he does not think, he actually sees it in some ways as a, a benefit that he's being offered a sweetheart deal because he believes that his ships are going to come back and he's going to have threefold the value of the loan anyway. So my, my point there being, he also views it as something that's in his interest in a way too, at the same time. Uh, but this, so this was, this is a piece that I'm a little confused by. You're saying that he's gaining some kind of benefit from the loan? Because to my, in my reading, it seemed like he was basically acting as surety for Bassanio with really no upside, right? It's sort of out of the goodness of his heart. Are you saying that there, did I miss something in that reading? Uh, I, I don't know that he's getting any benefit per se, but he seems, well, I mean, you know, maybe your, maybe your reading of it, you know, is correct on the precise terms. I'd have to think about it more. I guess he doesn't view it as, I, I think he views it as a good deal. It's not about what it provides to Bassanio Vice himself, meaning Antonio. It's not that Antonio is deriving positive benefit from it, but he seems mm-hmm. to be happy, not just for the moral reasoning of not having to pay interest, but because he feels quite assured that he's going to be able to meet the terms of the loan, no problem. Yeah. Like, it's just right. such an easy thing for him to do because he has money coming in. Therefore, he doesn't really have to worry about the concept of interest or having to offer a pound of his flesh to Shylock because it just seems like such a remote probability to him. Uh, I guess my point is it's not just out of some sort of moral conviction about interest that he's happy about it. I think he's happy about it because he sees it as something that's not ever really going to happen and therefore he doesn't really need to worry. Uh, right. At yeah, all I th- about I the think terms I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. So James, as we come into the ranking section of this play, There's a lot going on in this one. There are some very serious themes, but this play is also quite funny at various points. There are all the suitors that are trying to woo Portia. There's the comedy of grappling between Bassanio and and his manservant and all of the other characters trying to woo their respective significant others. You could see this as very uneven. But I actually really liked this play, and I I would rank it in the top tier of the ones we've read so far. How do you rank it, first off, and how do you feel that the tone is managed, despite some of the ambiguities and ambivalence that you feel towards some of the characters? So this play... um, Hmm, let me me just think about how how to put this for a second. I think there's an initial uncertainty or ambivalence about this play because to me it does not feel like a real comedy right or it doesn't it doesn't feel like it fits into the tragedy comedy history trichotomy if you will that we've been taught to view Shakespeare's plays as right it's not you know yes there's the love story between Bassanio and Portia and actually, this this leads to, uh, you know, one of my big questions when I was finishing the play, which is, you know, the play finishes with this thing about the rings mm-hmm. that I, you know, I, I want to think that it somehow plays into Shakespeare's thematic intentions for the play, and I just cannot figure out how. Mm. So on the one hand, yes, there's definitely comic elements. On the other hand, it's not 
really a comedy in the sense of Taming of the Shrew or even Love's Labor's Lost. And, like, you know, Love's Labor's Lost, of course, has that serious turn at the end. But Love's Labor's Lost, nonetheless, for the most part, is pretty madcap, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I find this play hard to categorize. And it really feels to me like the purpose of the play is more for Shakespeare to examine these kinds of questions about money and commerce. Mm-hmm. That said, this is one where the more that I thought about it, the more I liked it. You know, I think there is a lot of really rich stuff here, a lot of interesting ideas. And I think actually, the more you think about it, the more these disparate elements actually do add up in a thematic into a thematic whole. Yeah. So that was a long, a long entree into the question. As I've been thinking about where I would rank it, I mean, in comparison to the comedies, it's definitely high up there. I think the question is, even leaving aside the question of, I guess when I say in comparison with the comedies, I'm talking about the comedies as we understand them to be in the categorizations of how Shakespeare's work is usually presented to us, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's clearly better than any of Taming the Shrew, Two Gentlemen, Comedy of Errors. You know, where I think it starts to get into murkier territory for me is how it stacks up with Midsummer Night's Dream and Love's Labor's Lost in that group. Mm. I think ultimately there's more richness to it for me than Midsummer Night's Dream. I would still probably rank it below Love's Labor's Lost. I'm putting it at the top of my comedy list. Uh, So it's the number one in the comedies for me. And I think I'm going to say it's my new number three. So I think it's uh, below Romeo and Juliet, but above Henry VI Part Two, which is a tough, uh, tough call because I really loved Henry VI Part Two. Yeah, I'm I'm putting it. it I'm putting it number four. I'm putting it. I'm slotting it between Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet for me. It's definitely Um, and uh, then will quality. It's a quality play. And then, Will, what do you, uh, who would you anoint the MVP of this play? I know the temptation is to say Shylock, and I think that's a fair answer, but I'm going to go with Portia. Interesting. So I actually, the, the reason I wanted you to go first is because whichever of Portia or Shylock you chose, I was going to choose the other one. So I guess I'm going to anoint Shylock as the MVP. You know, when we were discussing this play prior to recording, you had a good line, which was that Portia gets the best speech, but Shylock has the best lines throughout. And I think that's a very accurate summation. So in, in some sense, he may be the MVP, but I think Portia underrated, certainly. Very funny character and gets a lot of good lines, has a lot of good laughs, and gets a lot of the good comedic material that Shylock does not get. So in that sense, maybe it makes sense that the dramatical side gets the MVP of Shylock and the comedic side gets the MVP of Portia. Yeah, I, I, I can endorse that. And then, Will, finally, as we wrap up, do you have any non-Shakespearean-related recommendations for our listeners? I do, James. I have been re-watching The Sopranos, as I alluded to earlier in the episode. And it is a fantastic program in so many ways. Really holds up quite well. Can be read on so many levels. The sacred and the propane, Will. The the sacred sacred and the propane. The sacred and the propane. Both side-splittingly funny subtle social commentary and also just a tremendously dark but insightful into some aspects of human nature fantastic show 
absolutely worth watching, holds up quite well, even though I will admit, as somebody who grew up a little bit in North Jersey, it holds a special place in my heart for that reason alone. Very nice. Uh, So that's one more time. David Chase's fantastic show, The Sopranos. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, a very special minisode looking at the 2004 film version of The Merchant of Venice, starring Al Pacino and Jeremy Irons. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.